The Old Testament lesson is from Daniel 12, verse 1 to 13. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, Who was above the waters of the stream? How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. The word of the Lord. Psalm 51, 7-17 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Then I will teach transgressions your way, and sinners will return to you. O Lord, lift my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not be sacrificed, for I will give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The, two, the New Testament lesson is from Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and, a, and to conquer. When I opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning is from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to Christ. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand for what you are to say. For Say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not even go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that this does not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of, of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone looks to you and says, look, there is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard, for I have told you these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when his time will come. It will be like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And this is what I say to all of you, stay awake. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord So, some light reading today. We're continuing in our walk through the second half of Mark, except in this instance, Jesus is marching along his path to the cross, but he pauses and he gives his followers a picture well past the cross, past the resurrection, past the ascension. He gives his people a vision of the future. In the last two chapters, Jesus has been getting into arguments with all the people that were going to torture and kill him. And he was winning, all of them. The Pharisees came to him trying to trip him up with some nonsense about Caesar and taxes, and he just took care of them completely. The Sadducees roll up to him with with a question about the resurrection, this very convoluted logic puzzle. They're trying to trip Jesus up using an ancient Mosaic law. And Jesus just 
answers that question in a way that they would have never thought and just dispatches with them. He tells them, you are so very wrong. And then a scribe comes up, and Jesus listens to what he says, and he turns to the scribe and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So not only does Jesus not, Jesus knows the law better than these people. He knows the gospel better than these people. He also is able to tell who and who, who is and who is not in the kingdom of God. Jesus is just crushing his opponents. So now his disciples know that he's the Messiah, but they think that this means that he is the, the rightful heir to King David, who'll retake the throne to Jerusalem and bring the blessings back to Israel. And they have to be excited. Even as Jesus said, I came here to be captured, tortured, killed, and then raised up on the third day. They still have to be excited because they know that Messiah has come. There's a tension there. But it seems like Jesus' fame and, and, and his movement is gathering steam. So how must it have felt when he lays this passage on them? He looks at the temple where they've been gathering and talking to people. This, this symbol of God's presence with his chosen people. The temple in Jerusalem. And he says, you see that thing? It is going to be gone, leveled to the ground. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. God, we ask that you would use your word to speak to us today. We ask that even in imposing or confusing passages like this, you would make your, your presence and your truth shine out to us clearly, that you would use these words to strengthen us in the work that you've given us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Some people, when they come to passages like this in the Bible, they want to skip over them as quickly as possible. You know, either let's, let's get back to talking about God's grace. Let's do that as quickly as possible. Or, or let's get back to talking about what our response to that grace should be to, to our neighbors and to the world. Now, there are some people, especially in the last hundred years or so, that it seems like this stuff is all they want to talk about. But the important thing to remember when you come across a passage like this in the Bible is that these are not all that rare. I mean, we heard one from Daniel. There's also similar passages in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Haggai. And then in the New Testament, Matthew, Luke, and Mark all have this same passage. It shows up again in Thessalonians and then the entire book of Revelation. So they're not uncommon. And so we need to not shy away from these visions of the future. We shouldn't centralize them. They aren't the gospel. But we shouldn't shy away from them. These are the words of Jesus. And he's reflecting words of, of the other parts of the Holy Bible. And they are all part of the grand story of redemption, of what God is doing in his kingdom. And since the biblical writers bothered to write them down, God wants his people to read these words. And since the Bible is given to us for our good and for the building up of God's people, we need to remember that these words are to, be, to, to increase in us our hope in Christ. These are designed to further anchor our hope in the promises of God and his unshakable love for his flock. And so, if you have your Bible, turn, turn in it to Mark 13. And as we go through these passages, we can see how some of the things in this that Jesus talked about have already happened. They have already come true as he prophesied they would. And we can see how some of these things are true still in our day and are coming true in our, in our time. And we can see how some of these things are going to come true in the future. And most importantly, we can really take seriously the commands of Jesus 
because we can trust in the promises of Jesus. So essentially, Jesus is telling us in this passage that the future is known, that the future is serious, but that the outcome is certain. And so at the end of all of that, our proper response to those things is to stay awake. So first, the future is known. This is important to remember when you're reading biblical prophecy. God did not create the world as some great big wind-up toy. And just like, you know, your little toy car and you pull it back and you let it go and you go, I wonder where it's going to go now. This is a, a theology that's gaining more steam today called open theism. And it says exactly that, that God cannot know the future. But this completely hollows out the idea that an omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present creator God has a story that he is telling through his world. It flies in the face of the entire story of Scripture. God knows, from the end, God knows the end from the beginning before the beginning happened. Jesus does not start by saying, you know, if these things happen or here's a distinct possibility. He says, do you see the stones of this temple? I tell you there will not be one of these stones left on top of one another. It is a certainty. You can bank on it. And that's the first thing to remember about these passages. God knows what the future holds because God is in control. This can be incredibly hard to swallow at times of great distress, either personally or corporately. But at the same time, it can also be a comfort. Jesus talks about this a lot. He says, aren't two sparrows so cheap that you can buy two of them for a penny? And yet, I tell you, not one sparrow in the world will fall to the ground unless the Father wills it. God is in control. So all of these, these things that Jesus is talking about, wars and rumors of wars, the abomination of desolation, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, God is in control of all of this. And so we know that this is all a part of the story that God is telling in his creation and that it will all work out according to his will. Sometimes we have no idea why. But the tribulations that Jesus prophesies that we all know that we go through. These tribulations must serve a greater purpose for what God is doing, a purpose that we might never understand this side of eternity. And by the way, there's no guarantee that we're going to understand it on the other side of eternity either. When we live in our, in our resurrection bodies, communing with Jesus forever, we're not going to be God. There's no guarantee that we're going to ever know some of the purposes and plans of God. But God does know, and from his perspective, the future is already known. Do not forget that. Now, the second point that Jesus is making is that the future is serious. There are passages that prophesy what the end times will look like and what the, the day of the Lord will look like. And, and, and Isaiah 25, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, I talk about it all the time. It is a feast on top of a mountain at the table of the Lord with, with God forever. And that's beautiful. But between here and there, Jesus tells us there's going to be trouble. So what do these things mean? Well, suffering is universal and the future is serious. So a few things, and this is important. We shouldn't necessarily see all the prophecies in chapter 13 as all going to be fulfilled right at the same time. This is a, a key thing in, in looking at biblical prophecy. One, uh, one thing that a lot of people will, will use as an illustration is think of, a, think of a stone that you skip across a pond. 
on its way to its final destination, it's going to land a couple times during the pond, in the pond, and it's going to make a mark that's going to be very similar to the final ripple that it leaves when it lands. Or think of it this way. When you're driving across a, a flat plain toward a group of mountains, you can see this if you, you leave Denver heading west. You're driving across a flat plain, you can see the Rockies rising up in front of you. And from where you're sitting, it looks like all of the Rocky Mountains are right in a row, right next to each other. But then when you get up to them, you realize that these mountains are, are dozens, and in some cases actually hundreds of miles apart from each other. And so when Jesus is speaking here, he is not necessarily speaking in distinct chronological order that all these things are going to happen at once. So some of the future... That, that Jesus is talking about here is for us, the past. Because the first thing that Jesus does is talk about how life will be for the disciples immediately after his death, resurrection, and ascension. He basically gives them a pretty grim view of church planting. He says, you're going to be beaten in the synagogues, you're going to be hauled into court, you're going to have everything taken from you. You will stand before governors and kings in my name. And then the beauty of scripture is that we see that this happened. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling body, in Jesus' name. And they don't have to worry about what they're going to say, because whatever they say in that hour is from the Holy Spirit. And so when they get hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, and they say, you have to stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter and John say, I absolutely realize that you have the authority to, to make that demand. And we can't, because we saw these things and we know them to be true. And later on, Paul gets hauled in front of the Jewish governor, the Roman regional overseer, and then eventually gets sent to Rome itself for a trial in front of Caesar. And so Jesus predicts these things to his disciples, and then they come true within a matter of months and years. It's all part of the plan. Jesus is talking about specific events in his disciples' life, but there is here an application for us as well. Jesus talks about a lot of people he says this several times. People are, who are going to show up in front of his believers and say, I'm him. I'm the guy. And his followers shouldn't believe them. And here Jesus is speaking about an antichrist. The idea of the antichrist is not a devil with a forked tail and a pitchfork and horns. The biblical idea of an antichrist is exactly that, an, an unchrist, a non-savior. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John tells us that there are many antichrists running around trying to pollute the church. These are wolves come to devour Christ's sheep, people who would lead the flock away from Jesus and lead them toward themselves. This was apparently a big problem in the days of the early church, so much so that both John and Paul had to write about it. And are there antichrists in our world today? There absolutely are. People who seek to build themselves up at the expense of the flock. People who draw people to themselves instead of pointing people to Jesus. And so this is the first example of Jesus telling us to be on our guard. These things are to be expected because the future is known to God. In a world that loves its sin, it is understandable that if there is a movement of people who live lives of open-handed generosity, who live lives of love for one another and for their neighbor, who live lives of servanthood and submission, it is understandable that there would be people who would try to come in and exploit that movement for their own gain. Jesus knows this, and he tells us to be on guard against those people. 
So that's part one. Jesus is telling the early church how the early church is going to go. A large portion of the rest of this prophecy concerns the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is the same temple that Jesus had just finished clearing out, calling it a den of robbers, and, and just verbally dismantling all of the bigwigs and leaders of this place. And yet, as they're walking out of the temple after Jesus has just done all these things, one of his disciples, I, just, in, I, I can only hear it in like the most simpleton voice, goes, look, teacher, look at the pretty buildings. And he says, oh, you see this? This is, this is all coming down. And once they're out of the city, they walk out of the temple heading east. They go down into the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives sits actually a little higher than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's about a, it's about a mile away. And you can see the temple just crowning the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus points at the temple and he tells them what's going to happen to it. And you have to, you have to realize that for Jesus' disciples and for any Jew at that time, about 40 years before the temple actually did get destroyed, the idea of the temple being destroyed would have been unthinkable. The temple was the symbol of Israel. We don't have any kind of analog to that in our modern life. It was a symbol of national pride. It was a symbol of theological significance. It was central to the idea that the Jews were God's chosen people. I mean, the idea of the temple being destroyed. Imagine September 11th, but you have to fold into that the World Trade Center, the White House, the Capitol, Mount Rushmore, the Sears Tower, the Golden Gate Bridge, and that doesn't even come close because none of those things are central to our religion and our identity as people of God. And yet, Jesus said to his disciples that this temple, this symbol of Israel, the most beautiful building in the world, according to many at that time, was going to be knocked to the ground. And then, about 40 years later, in 70 AD, the armies of the emperor Titus marched into Jerusalem, and they tore the temple down so that not one stone was standing on top of another. And Rome celebrated this as a great victory for them. On the, on the front of your worship guide, the Arch of Titus, there's a, a, um, a sculpture in there, carved into stone, a celebration of the destruction of Jerusalem. This was what Jesus was talking about when he spoke about the abomination of desolation. Now, many conservative scholars figure that Mark was written sometime between 70 AD and 75 AD, or right after this happened. And so there's that weird little aside that Mark puts in there. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, and then Mark puts in, let the reader understand. That little aside there is he's making reference to this horrific event that just happened. It's like he can't even name it. And this passage about the, uh, the abomination of desolation is very, very specific to Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus says, when it happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is not like metaphorical Judea, like we've all got a Judea in our life. This is like these people here, when, they're, when, when this thing happens in Jerusalem, let everyone else in the, out in the suburbs book it to the mountains because they're not safe. When the army comes ripping into the capital city, everyone needs to run. Sounds like good advice. He says that people shouldn't even stop to get their belongings because their life is more important than their stuff. And he even says, pray that this doesn't happen in winter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pray that this doesn't happen in winter so that, less, so that less people will die, more will be spared. So that infants, nursing mothers, 
The vulnerable will be taken care of. By the way, when the siege of Jerusalem started, it happened at the end of April. God does answer prayer. But the destruction of the city of Jerusalem was gruesome. The city was leveled. The temple was obliterated. The historian Josephus estimates that over a million people died during that event. Jesus is saying that it's going to happen. And the interesting thing is, he's still speaking about a future event, but he starts to talk in the past tense. In verse 20, Jesus says, If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. He's talking about something 40 years in the future, but he's talking about it in the past tense. To us as finite creatures, we live one way through time and we only see things in one direction. We can remember today and yesterday and the past, we can't see the future. To God, everything has been planned and known since the world began. And again, in this passage, as in the last, Jesus returns to the idea of false Christs. This is a theme throughout this. After his death and resurrection, he says, major le- which is a major event, death and resurrection of Jesus, huge event, false leaders are going to arise. After the destruction of the temple, where God was illustrating the idea that this temple sacrifice system was no longer needed, It was a huge event, and false leaders will arise. Be on guard. Be watchful. He's saying, you know the things that I've taught you. You know the things that I have taught you, and you know what the Scripture says. Judge people against that standard. Don't be taken in. And then he moves on. He moves on kind of telescoping the prophecy out to the end of all things. This is some of the stuff that we heard in Daniel. Now, in Daniel, the near fulfillment of the prophecy, when Daniel was speaking about the abomination of desolation, that actually happened too. That was a guy, that was a a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Hellenistic leader before the Romans came in. And he came through, he rolled through Israel and took them over. And yet, there's still the far off fulfillment that's going to happen at the end of things. Same thing with Revelation. We see the four creatures call to these four horses and they come and they are given dominion over the earth. In a sense, those things have already started to happen. There is already death in our world. There is already the abuse of of power and money and the poor in our world. There is already strife in our world. And yet the final version hasn't happened yet. It's the same here. But the interesting thing is there's no indication given that it was going to take, you know, at least 2,000 years before the second part of Jesus' prophecy about the temple and the third part of his prophecy about the end of all things was going to... It was, there was no indication of time given. It's probably why writers like Peter and Paul write with such urgency because to them, they believed that the Lord's return was imminent in their lifetimes. Anyway, Jesus reminds us that the outcome of all of these wars, rumors of wars, familial strife, abomination, desolation, all of it, the outcome is this. But in those days, this is verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, with power and great glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is the key thing to remember. 
when you read a passage like this in Scripture. It's the key thing to remember in any what's called an ap- apocalyptic text. Daniel or 1 Thessalonians 5 or the entire book of Revelation, the outcome is certain. Jesus wins. To us, the future is unknown, and, but to him, the future is not in doubt. If the future was in doubt, if, if, if this idea that God cannot know the future because we, we all have free will and can, and, and can do according to what we will and God can't possibly know all the things we're going to do, if God can't know the future, then we should just panic all the time. If God can't know the future, then nothing needs to matter. And we should do whatever we want all the time. Because clearly this God who claims to be in control is not really in control. So what do we have to go on? And so when we read something like this, it can be both a sobering reminder of what it means to live in this world and be a follower of Christ. But it can also strengthen us because the end result of every prophecy of the end times is that Jesus wins. And the takeaway for us is to stay awake. Be alert. What does that mean? Does that mean we should spend a whole lot of time poring over passages like this, trying to map these end times prophecies onto our current moment and figure out a bunch of like one-to-one analogies? No, it doesn't. I used to be one of those people that I spoke about at the beginning that would love to skip over this stuff in the Bible as quickly as I possibly could and get back to stuff that I understood. Because I had only ever heard passages like this misused, and I didn't understand them. I mean, I I grew up hearing televangelists who would talk about how how this figure in the Bible mapped onto Ronald Reagan or this figure mapped onto Bill Clinton or whatever. You can still find best-selling books today of guys who make a really good living peddling that same stuff. We We all want to think we live in very important times. Would you like to know how many different generations of the church over the last 2,000 years have believed that they were living in the end times and that these apocalyptic prophecies all mapped up onto various figures in their day? Every single one of them. There are instances throughout all of church history of respected writers, central figures, esteemed theologians writing about how This person is the fulfillment of Daniel, and this person is the fulfillment of Revelation, and how it's all coming to an end right in our time. Isn't it lucky that I was born when I was? We all want to cast ourselves as central to the plot because we can't imagine how life could work without us. But God does not call us to try and figure out when these things are going to happen. It's it's almost as though, as I've been reading this this week, it's so interesting, it's almost as though... Jesus knew how the human heart and mind worked, and he wanted to head off that idea. He says, look, nobody, nobody knows when these things are going to happen. Don't worry about it. Don't spend a moment thinking about it. Verse 32, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. Now, you can get a bunch of messed up doctrine if you want to misread that verse. You know, Jesus wasn't God, or there's really actually three gods, not, not a God who's three in one. This verse alone could be worth its own sermon one day, but if you trust the words of Scripture, you see that while the Father is not the Son, you also know that they are still one God, because elsewhere Jesus says, I and the Father are one. But while on earth, in his earthly ministry, Philippians says that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the role of a servant. And so at that moment, it might very well have been true, 
that the Son did not know the day at the, at the end of all things that only the Father knew. The Trinity is a mystery and we cannot know everything about it. And that's not the point of this passage. Don't let that sidetrack you from the main takeaway of this. Jesus is saying, don't spend your precious time and energy worrying about when, the, when these things are going to happen. Just know that they are going to and be alert. Be like the servant waiting for his master to come home. Your job is to be on your guard. So what, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean for us today? Let me close with a picture of, of what it might look like for us to be alert. Basically, it's this. Jesus calls us to live each day as though the Lord were returning tomorrow. If that's true, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to... We're supposed to live with fervor and with passion for the people around us. For the people who don't yet know Jesus. That is hard to do every day. Doing anything with fervor and passion every day can be exhausting. This is why God calls us to return to him and rest in him and be refreshed by him. But we have no idea when Jesus is coming back. And so our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, even our enemies that don't know Jesus, they should be on our hearts at all times. And yet, and yet, Paul, in his letter, Paul tells the church to live quietly to mind our own affairs so that we can walk respectfully before outsiders. How do we do both of those things? How do we honor the words of Jesus and the words of Paul? I think that the best picture of how to merge those two, to be on guard, to stay awake, to be alert, and yet to live a quiet life in peace with one another. I think it's found in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. It's a great passage for how the people of God ought to live in this world as exiles and sojourners. Peter, we think, it's pretty clear, Peter likely believed that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. He writes with an urgency that these things need to be accomplished now because God's coming back. And he has words of wisdom for the church then, and these are words of wisdom for the church today. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Basically, he's saying, be on guard. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be awake. Don't get taken in by false leaders. Don't get taken in by false Christs. That's part of being sober-minded. But then he goes on in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards. Same word there that Jesus is using at the end of Mark 13, talking about the stewards of the house waiting for him to come back. Peter is saying as good stewards of God's grace. Jesus is coming soon. What should we do? Have someone over to dinner. Whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, tell them about Jesus. Whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, show them God's love for them. That's how the church advances. It's how the church advanced after Jesus' ascension, when there were false Christs and tormentors running around. It's how the church advanced after the destruction of the temple, after 70 AD. And it's how the church advanced and will advance all the way up to the day when the groom comes back to claim his bride. So do not be afraid. 
No matter what is happening in life, do not be afraid because the future is known. And the future is serious. And Jesus tells us that there is going to be times of tribulation and trouble. So don't take it lightly. But be assured, the outcome is certain. The man in linen is going to stand on the other side of the river. The white rider and the white horse. Jesus, with the sword coming out of his mouth, is going to come, on, come out of the clouds with great power and great glory, and his arrival will be unmistakable. That's the end of all of this. And our response in the meantime is to be witnesses to that king until he comes back. Let me pray. God, as we move in this season towards, towards your capture, towards your torture, and to, towards your death, as we reflect on these things, let us also not lose sight, we pray, of the fact that Jesus is the risen king, that he is enthroned, that both of these things are true, Lord that he is the great servant, that he is the lamb, and that he is the king. Would you please use these, these words to make us more alert and awake this week, to make us more sober-minded, to give us more passion and fervor for the gospel, and to give us an even greater sense of that open-handed life that you call us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.